mentioned, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark today. We're going to be in chapter 8. We're taking verses 31 through 38 through the end of the chapter. Um, And we remember last time we were together, Jesus has been teaching his disciples uh, in a special way by asking them questions. A lot of times Jesus would provoke thought through asking questions. And so he asks his disciples two questions that we looked at last week. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? We really tried to hone in on that second question, right? Because we know what the world thinks about Jesus. We're saturated in it every single day. We're experts on our cultural ideas of Jesus. But what do you think? What do you believe about Jesus? I have a gnat terrorizing me right now. And I just wanted to tell somebody. Sorry. We're experts on what our culture thinks about Jesus, but what do you think about Jesus? And and more importantly, when it comes to what you think about Jesus, what has informed that belief? Whatever you conclude about Jesus, how have you concluded that? Something has informed that conclusion. So if the world informs what you conclude about Jesus, you'll likely land in a place where you say, well, he was without a doubt a, a transformational leader. He was a captivating teacher. He was uh, a revolutionary, an impressive historical figure, maybe a prophet. And you know, uh, those those generic labels are are generally what just the typical person would say about Jesus, I think, in our society. And so back then, they had those general ideas too, maybe in a little different way. Back then, when he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They're like, well, some people say... Some people think you're like John the Baptist resurrected. Some people just say you're one, of the, you're one of the greats, like one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Maybe even like Elijah. Like they, they have really positive thoughts about you, but they ultimately fall short of who Jesus is, right? Now, if you have a biblical informed conclusion about who Jesus is, it'll be something much greater than just, hey, he was a great leader, right? It's something more specific than that even. It's that he is the Christ, Who do you say that I am? When Peter heard that question, he answered it really specifically. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, that response is a significant moment in the Gospel of Mark. Because up to this point, even though we've spent 29 weeks in the Gospel of Mark, no one has identified Jesus as the Christ until Peter in that previous paragraph. And so up to this point, others have identified, just not people. Remember, demons, when they come in contact with Jesus, they recognize him as the Christ, as the son of the living God. That happens a couple times. We know that God the Father recognizes Jesus as his beloved son with whom he is well pleased at his baptism. But no person, no human being has identified Jesus as the Christ until Peter's great confession in that previous paragraph. So that's significant that he says it so plainly, so, so explicitly. So do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And what has informed that belief? That's something I want us to think about. You know, maybe when you're thinking about answering that right now, that, the thought of answering that question might stir some controversy in your mind. Maybe it stirs some confusion in your heart. Maybe some insecurities or uncertainty. Well, if that's the case, I wrote this sermon for you. I, I got out of bed today for you. Like, I'm excited to preach this sermon because this passage that we're studying brings a ton of clarity to what it means about Jesus being the Christ, specifically. 
And so if you have some insecurities in your heart about believing that Jesus is the Christ or some uncertainty or confusion, this text really clears that up. You're in the right place, and I'm incredibly excited that you're here today. So, you know, my job isn't to transform your heart into a new person. Uh, my job is to inform you. My job is to help you understand what God's word says. So maybe we can start here. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, what is the Christ? What is the Christ? A lot of times we just, we immediately go to, hey, are you a Christian? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? We, we jump to that without first defining what that even means. I think we, we get the cart ahead of the horse a lot of times as we try to share our faith. So what is the Christ? Well, the word Christ is a Greek word. It's a translation of a Hebrew word that is Messiah. So in the Old Testament, anytime you read the words anointed one, you are reading the word Messiah because Messiah means the anointed one. And so the New Testament written in Greek, we see the Christ referred to. That's because it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. That means anointed one. So when you're reading about an anointed one in the Old Testament, this is applied to a lot of different people. So sometimes in the Old Testament, you're reading about the priests. You can read about the priests in Leviticus, and they are referred to as anointed ones. They are referred to as messiahs, with that lowercase m. Maybe we think of it like that for clarity. Priests are referred to as anointed ones. They were anointed by God to carry out the worship of God's people in the temple, so they served God in a special way. Other times in the Old Testament, you'll see that anointed one applied to prophets, Prophets were anointed by God to deliver messages from God to his people. They were anointed by God to minister to his people in a special way. They were like lowercase messiahs. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll even see kings referred to as anointed ones, as messiahs. With that, again, lowercase m. I want to keep emphasizing that for a reason. Now, when I was looking at all the times a king was referred to as an anointed one, here's one that stuck out to me. Even the pagan Persian king Cyrus, who held God's people in slavery, he was referred to as an anointed one. He was anointed by God. Why? Well, he's anointed by God because in that he was the agent by which God's people were released from slavery. He carried out the will of God. He was anointed by God to do so. And so that same word... Messiah was even used in reference to him. Okay, I got the insects are just all over me today. I got a little, got a little uh, ant here. Come here, buddy. Don't want to kill you. Here, you can play down here all you want. There you go. Nope. There you go. Now we're good. Nature is actively working against me today. Okay. See, if it was just me alone, I would have just smashed his guts out. But i got to be nice up here. Okay. We'll see if anything else comes out of the sky. A wasp got Chris one time preaching, so that's not happened yet. So we have these priests referred to as anointed ones. We have prophets referred to as anointed ones. We have kings referred to as anointed ones. And all of these use that same word, Messiah. But it, they all foreshadowed the ultimate anointed one that was to come. The absolute Messiah. The Messiah. Capital M. The Christ. That absolute Messiah was something that was anticipated by God's people to make all things right again. And so when Peter identifies Jesus as 
the Christ so plainly. This is a huge, huge deal. And so when he, when he labeled Jesus as the Christ, though, he was caught up in a lot of the short-sightedness of the day. So it's important for you and I to understand how people, how Jews like Peter would have thought of this absolute Messiah. The way that he would have formulated his understanding of this ultimate Messiah that was to come someday is, here's what he did. He would take all of the best qualities of those lowercase messiahs, all of the best qualities of the priests and the prophets and the kings that were in the Old Testament, and he would have added that to all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, all of the positive ones, all of the ones that spoke of the Messiah and, and things that they would want to hear the Messiah doing, all of those positive messianic prophe prophecies, they would add that to the best qualities of these lowercase messiahs, and they would put it in a pot and swirl it up and come to the conclusion of this one great anticipated absolute Messiah. And so this is what Jesus has come to correct, because they have an incomplete understanding of the Messiah, and, we're, and I'll tell you why. We'll get into that. But when he, Peter believed that Jesus was this Messiah, but he still lacked clarity. He was still insecure about it. He was still confused about what it actually meant to be the Christ. And so this passage today that we're studying, again, if you, if you have some of those insecurities, if you have some of that confusion, if you have some of that blurriness, this passage acts like a spiritual eye doctor to help you have a greater focus into what it means to actually be the Christ. This is Jesus teaching about the office of this absolute Christ. So here's what it means. Let's get into verses 31 through 33. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you were not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is like, this, remember, this comes right on the coattails of, of Peter identifying Jesus as the Christ or confessing Jesus as the Christ. So he began to teach about the Christ. Let me teach you about this son of man. That would have been a synonymous term. Let me teach you about the Son of Man. He must suffer many things and be rejected. Well, that's not what he expected to hear. But there's a word in there that I would circle. If, if you're one of those who highlight in your Bible or circle in your Bible, must. It must happen. So for the first time, Jesus is teaching about his fulfillment of the office of Messiah. And he, he must suffer and he must die. Because that's what it means to be the Christ. This absolute Messiah must suffer and he must die. He must suffer many things. So, so again, just put yourself in Peter's shoes. Try to understand things through the lens that Peter was seeing things through. He was your typical Jew. And he had formulated, again, his idea of the Messiah by adding those best qualities to those messianic prophecies that were positive. All the while, he was ignoring so many of those Old Testament passages that mention the Messiah and talk about some negative things that will take place in this Messiah, that prophesied this Messiah, right? They were ignoring all of the Old Testament prophecies that talked about suffering 
and rejection of this absolute Messiah. Now, here's a couple of homework passages because we don't have time to cover every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And we do often as we go through scripture. But I would encourage you, if you want some family time together or some time in personal devotion, go read Isaiah 52. Go read Isaiah 53. I mean, some scholars refer to that as the first gospel. Go back and read Isaiah 52 and 53. Go read Psalm 22. It, it, it's like practically a, a play-by-play of the crucifixion. These are messianic prophecies that were written down centuries. Like Isaiah was written like seven, eight hundred years before Jesus' earthly ministry, and yet articulates exactly what would happen in the life of this absolute Christ that was to be anticipated and to, to, to come. But see, when Jews studied about the Messiah, and as they formulated those ideas, they kept the ideas they liked, and they ignored the ideas they didn't like. So isn't that like, I mean, have we changed at all, right? Everybody likes this edited version of Christianity. They like an edited version of the Messiah. And so it's oftentimes that people, they ignore the parts of the Bible that they can't make sense of. They ignore the parts of the Bible that say things they don't want to hear. And then they focus on the parts of the Bible that say things they want to hear or that are positive and encouraging and on Caleb, right? <laughs> so they, they love certain parts of the Bible. They don't like those other parts, though. And so when they get something that they don't like, they just leave it out. They, 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 they ignore it. And if you try to talk about it, if you try to confront them, look out. When someone has developed a cultural understanding of Jesus that they like, they will tighten their grip on that cultural understanding of Jesus. And if you try to pry their hands off of that cultural understanding of Jesus, look out. If they have come to believe something about the Christian faith that they really want to believe, and you try to pry their fingers off of that belief, look out. You are in danger. Don't mess with people and their understanding and their cultural understanding of Jesus. And so a lot of times we don't confront people. We don't talk about those things that are hard to talk about because of all the challenges that are included, right? If you try to confront them, they will rebuke you. Even when Jesus is articulating the office of Messiah to his disciples, their cultural understanding was so important to them that even Peter rebuked Jesus, took him aside, and rebuked him for messing with what he wanted to believe about this Messiah. How dare you, Jesus? What are you talking about? No, 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 no. That's not how this is going down. That's not what I want to believe. You're not going to suffer many things. This Christ isn't going to suffer many things. That goes against everything I, I want to believe. So just think, if, if Jesus had left them in that belief, they would have missed him entirely. They would have missed the gospel. They would have missed what the office of Messiah was to accomplish. They would have missed Jesus. They, you know, had Jesus not pushed them to reconcile all of these complex ideas that exist in Scripture about the, the Messiah, they would have rejected him like the elders rejected him, like the chief priests rejected him, like the scribes rejected him. They would have rejected him. But so often people are just willing to settle for a shallow, small understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Christ, and they miss the purpose of the gospel entirely. And so Peter's, again, Peter's cultural human perspective of this office of Messiah, it was so limited and so small, he could not imagine Jesus fulfilling this role without a military conquest without Jesus 
gathering an army and conquering Rome and taking over the land of Israel and giving it back to the Jews. They could not think beyond that because they had grown up in a culture that had taught them to believe that. And no one was going to mess with their cultural understanding of this Messiah. And people, again, when they find something they want to hear, this edited version, if it meets their felt needs, like it met the felt needs of these disciples and, and Peter, they're content to stick to just stick with that. Well, when Jesus so plainly contradicted their limited understanding, again, Peter took him aside, he rebuked him. That word rebuke, we've seen that several times in the Gospel of Mark. I mean like when a, when a demon is cast out of someone, it's rebuked. It, that word has bite to it. Peter rebuked Jesus. It's like he didn't even hear the raise again part, you know, when you read that prophecy that Jesus says, it's like he just heard the killed, you're going to be, what, the Messiah's going to suffer many things, he's going he's to be killed? He just went right past it, right? You can't die. But again, when people get committed to what the culture wants them to believe, it's hard to pry their hand off that. So Jesus, in his rebuke back to Peter, he, he notices the other disciples looking as Peter is rebuking him. He, and, and so Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Well, you never forget that, right? Like, even if you've never been to church, you've never read the Bible, you know that rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Man, this is the one guy who confessed him as the Christ. And not even the next, not, it's the same page, right? The next paragraph. He's calling him Satan. Well, there's a reason for that. Peter is tempting him with the same thing Satan tempted him with. Remember when, when Jesus is in the desert being tempted for 40 days by Satan. Satan's like, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down to me and I will provide a path that is suffering free. You don't have to suffer many things. Just bow down and worship me. And so now Peter here is tempting Jesus with the same path. Trying to rebuke him for saying he's going to suffer. Some scholars will even argue that Satan wasn't done tempting Jesus in the, in the desert. It continued all the way through people like Peter, who was tempting him here in this very moment to not go down that road. But Jesus points out why Peter believed what he believed ultimately, right? It's because he was setting his, setting his mind on the things of, of man, not the things of God. And so again, what informs your belief? If man informs your belief, if culture and society form your belief, you're going to set your, your mind on those things. But yet, remember when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, what does Jesus say? We studied that parallel passage in Matthew when he says, my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. When it's God-informed, right, when you understand Jesus is the Christ in the terms that God has laid out, discerning the Messiah from God's point of view, that makes a difference. Peter was discerning the Messiah from a worldly view, a partial truth. And partial truths are always really dangerous, right? Partial truths are way more dangerous than obvious error, right? No one believes in obvious error, but a partial truth, man, they're more believable. People can really buy into those. And so Peter had bought into a lot of the partial truths about the Messiah, and Jesus was going to expand that. And he was going to show how it's in the Old Testament prophecies. And so here's why that's a big deal. If you don't understand why Jesus had to suffer as the Messiah, again, you were, you're going to miss the gospel entirely. But here's something else that happens. If you don't understand the suffering that is to take place in the office of Messiah, 
you're also going to miss out on understanding suffering in your own life. You're going to be someone who resents God when you go through suffering. And you're going to ignore all of those warnings and all of that information in Scripture that informs you about how suffering will play out in your life, especially as a believer, and how it has purpose in your life. And so, again, what informs what you believe? Here's what Jesus has to say so that they can understand the suffering that he has to go through and so that they can understand the suffering that they are to go through, and by extension, us as well. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, the, the, the group has gotten bigger now. You know what? Everybody gather around. I'm ready to teach now. I want to teach you a deeper truth. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everybody would have understood a cross reference, right? This is a form of execution with the Romans. The Romans would have reserved this form of execution for exclusively those who were not Roman. It was too brutal to kill a Roman that way. But if someone was not Roman, yeah, that was a great form of execution for them. But that would have been literally paraded in front of them on a routine basis when someone broke Roman law and they executed someone. You would carry your cross beam through the community while people mocked you, spit on you, and you would take that all the way to where you would hang and die. And so when Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, this was a clear reference to how everyone is going to suffer along with this Christ. There's a sense in which we, we uh, have a connection to him through this suffering. Jesus was teaching that in the same way I'm not going to take the easy way or the suffering free way. Neither are you. So are you willing to suffer? I mean, again, if you're going to model your life after the one known as the suffering servant, shouldn't you expect suffering? Shouldn't you anticipate suffering? Shouldn't you have some sort of understanding as to how suffering plays a role, a significant role in your life? We should expect it. It should feel like cross-beam carrying, according to Jesus. Let's continue through 35 and, and through, uh, through verse 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So there's two aspects of life spoken of here. He, he talks of life in the, in the present way, the, this physical life that we all have and live. And then he talks about life in this eternal way. And so those who try to preserve their physical life in the sense that you avoid any and all martyrdom, you avoid any and all shaming or hardships or anything like that, well, you're going to lose Jesus. You're going to lose the gospel. You're going to lose this eternal life. Yet whoever loses this physical life, that is someone who accepts the suffering and the role that it plays in our lives, whoever perseveres through it, remains faithful in it, well, they're a life that's saved. Eternal life is gained. You know, you think about it, living your life. Is the benefit worth the cost? That's what, really what it boils down to. Anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what religion you subscribe to, no matter what worldview that you have, atheist or not, it doesn't matter. The benefit and the cost, at the end of the day, this is kind of where we go with it. What does it profit a man? This is such a great verse for any and everyone to think about. 
What does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world? What really does that get you? You want a dose of realism and pessimism today? Here's some. <laughs> like, you know, if you live your life exclusively for gain in the sense that we think of gain as, as humans, you know, where, where, do, where does that end? Well, it ends the same place any other life ends. It ends in death. You can accumulate all the wealth you want. Maybe you're really good at it. Maybe you get an extravagant amount of wealth. But at the end of the day, you'll die. At the end of your life, you die. And then all of that money is divided up amongst people who didn't earn it, and they get all your money. What happens if you spend your whole life accumulating stuff? Well, at the end of your life, you die. And then it's divided up and given to people who didn't earn it. And you don't get that either. I mean, what about all your accomplishments? Doesn't that give your life meaning? What about all your accomplishments? Well, all of your accomplishments will be forgotten sooner or later. No one knows about any of my accomplishments in here as a child already. Right? And, and we're all just a few generations from being completely and totally forgotten. Can you tell me about the accomplishments of your great-great-grandpa? You probably don't even know his name, do you? You don't know anything that he ever did or owned. You might hear a few stories handed down here and there, but you don't even know what he was like in any way, shape, or form. That's your destiny too. You're a few generations from being completely forgotten. No one will care. <laughs> How's that for a kick in the teeth? But it's true. That's just realism, right? I don't expect my great, great, great grandkids to know a single thing about me to be totally forgotten what's the point then what's what, what, what's a profit a man ultimately if you gain the whole world then if you have all the accomplishments and all the stuff and all the wealth what's it gain in the end for what can a man give in return for his soul let's say that you did gain it all you were the most successful at gaining wealth and stuff and accomplishments you were a plus you can't swap your soul. You can't swap it for your soul. You can't get your soul back. You're still gonna die. Let's go on. I got some more encouragement for you here in verse 38. Jesus is explaining why we don't have to be ashamed of suffering. There's purpose to it. For whoever is ashamed of me and in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, we're so tempted to be ashamed of our faith and we're so tempted to be ashamed of God and the hard things that are taught to us in Scripture because we live in a shame culture. We love shaming people in American society. Let's just talk about our culture right now. We are a shaming culture. Like, shaming people, people get high on shaming others. They, they absolutely, like, they, they'll, they'll openly shame people and then they'll virtue signal because that's yet another way of shaming other people. I mean... The reason our culture is so caught up in it, though, is because shaming people works. If you want someone to fall in line with what you believe, shame them. Shame them publicly if you want to get quicker results. And so our culture has cre created this monster of shaming. Whoever can shame those who don't believe what they believe the loudest, they win. Everyone's going to believe what they believe because nobody wants to be shamed. We're terrified of being shamed. So when we contemplate this question, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, we might look over our shoulder. Who's listening? That depends. 
What are people going to think of me? I, I want to believe that he's the Christ. I just don't want to be shamed. I, wanna, I want to be a believer. I just don't want the hardship. I don't want the martyrdom. I don't want people to be overly judgmental about me. And as soon as I sign up for that publicly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in line to get shamed. Because that's what the world has always done when it comes to Christians historically. Right? There may be a time in American history in which Christians reigned supreme and, and Christians were the one doing the shaming, which that's a whole other sermon, and that was a, a wrong thing to do too. because it, it lacked the gentleness that's required in sharing the gospel. But we live in a post-Christian Christian era of American society. We are not the majority. We will be shamed by the majority and are routinely. So when we, when we try to answer that question, who do we say Jesus is, we have the tendency to, to tone it down and maybe not want to answer because we're afraid. Jesus says, you're trying to hold on to this life that you need to deny. You need to lose that mentality of life to follow me. You need to lose, your, lose the obsession with being loved by everyone. Lose this need to be more successful than everyone. Lose this desire to have more stuff than everybody else. Lose you know, this, this passion to be accepted by our society. All of these are natural born desires that we have to deny. And we have to accept the shaming that will inevitably come our way for following the Christ. Right? The, the world, don't be surprised when the world hates you, Jesus says. The world hated me first. They're going to hate you too. So here's the paradox of the Christian faith. And this is what I love to think about. The paradox of the Christian faith is that you find life by losing it. You find life by dying to yourself and following the way of God, this path to true life. Now that was a really hard pill for Peter to swallow. And it's still a hard pill for us to swallow today. We find life by losing it. We find life by accepting these things that we can't stand and are, are terrified of. Again, Peter, Peter he, wanted to be, he wanted Jesus to be this Christ in the sense that he wanted Jesus to overcome the world, literally, militarily, uh, overcome culture and society. He never dreamed that Jesus as the Christ would be able to overcome the world through suffering and death. And in the same way, you and I, we have a hard time understanding how we can overcome this world through this same path of suffering and death. We, we find true life, eternal life, by losing life. You know, Peter fought against that understanding, and it was no doubt days worth of just agonizing thought. And, and certainly you and I, when we contemplate the Christian faith, we go back and forth between these two worlds. And we're, we're, we struggle. And we have this temptation to, to fall in line with what culture wants us to think, what the world wants us to think. And we, we also feel this draw by God's grace to, to righteousness and to his way of thinking. And so Peter was caught in between those same two worlds. And no doubt he struggled in that but it's so amazing to see how over time Peter's heart was changed. The way of thinking about suffering and death for Peter totally transformed 
Like in this moment as a disciple of Jesus, he is 100% against it to the point in which he rebukes the Son of God. But he came around. He came around after he saw it literally play out in the life of Jesus. How he saw that suffering and death play a significant and very purpose-filled role in the office of Messiah. He began to apply that to his own life and make sense of suffering that he was enduring. He got to the point in which he, when he was suffering, he could be glad in the midst of it. He got to the point in which when, he, when, when suffering came his way, he rejoiced in it. Because he found his solidarity with Christ. Let me read to you this passage. This is in 1 Peter. Because it was written by Peter. It's in 1 Peter. It's chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. I'll read it to you. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you suffer in those ways, in other words, he's saying, well, yeah, you deserve the suffering. Don't, that's suffering needlessly. That's suffering because of sin. He said, but, but let none of you, I'm sorry, but yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. See the, the, the difference there? If you suffer as an evildoer, you should be ashamed. But if you suffer as a Christian for the, for the gospel message, for the, the, these, the complexity of these truths that we've been studying, don't be ashamed. He goes on to say, but let him glorify God in that name, in the name of Jesus, that is. And so, again, it's incredible how this understanding of the office of Christ is so important. Because if you have this small view and this small worldly understanding of Jesus, you're going you're gonna to miss the gospel, and of course you're going to reject him. Because that's not what he came to do. But if you have this God-informed understanding of the gospel that makes sense of the suffering, that gives purpose to that suffering and death, it'll give purpose to the suffering and death in your own life. And you'll find life by losing life. And so we're going to walk into a time of communion in which we come back to this paradox. Communion is a time to embrace that paradox. That Christ lost his life. He, he was forsaken by God the Father. He he, despite living a perfect, sinless life, was executed on the cross. And it's that death that brings us life. So we, we take that bread to remember we're not perfect. We're fallen and we're broken. But he was sinless. And, and I have faith in Jesus' perfection and righteousness. And through that faith, his righteousness is imputed to me. So I'm seen as righteous before God. You are seen as righteous before God right now, despite your sin. Because his righteousness has been given to us, not because we've done good enough in our life. We take that juice to remember the blood shed on the cross. That it's not that I got away with my sins. My sins have been punished. They were punished on Jesus, on the cross. My sins have been atoned for. And so therefore, I have been made right with God. And so go back to that paradox today and find life by losing life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this moment in Scripture that clarifies the office of the Christ. We thank you for this time to study together as believers. Lord, for those here today that may have uh, confused or insecure or, or partial understanding of you as our Messiah, Lord, I just pray 
a special blessing on them. Or maybe there's conflict in their mind as they think about this. I pray that this time together as they battle in that conflict, I pray that this time together was soothing and, 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 and peaceful for them. I, I pray that it, that it brought peace, but that the clarity of the gospel is, is what brings that peace, Lord. So as we walk into a time of communion, Lord, help us to bask in the, the truth of your gospel in a time of just genuine worship by your grace and through your spirit. And it's in your name, Jesus.